Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. Okay, we are back in full effect in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. And fall is upon us. And no fall is upon us. And most people come out with the earth tones and are ready to rock and get ready for what they call pumpkin season and Thanksgiving season and what happens there. I got somebody rocking green today. <laughs> and actually, she's rocking her green from her colors, repping the repping the uh, sorority that she has embraced, been a part of the sisterhood. Rhonda, how you feeling today? I'm doing well, Kari. Thank you so much for asking. How are you? Oh, doing very well, very well. This has been like one in the making for a while. I asked you to come on and I knew that we'd get you in effect. Uh, it's good to have you here with Detroit is Different. And uh, I'm sure this conversation will be one that people interested in a lot of different things, or at least claim to be interested in a lot of different things we can cover. How we always start all these Detroit is Different talks is you in Detroit. Uh, are you a first generation Detroiter, second? Like, how did you and your family come here? Good question. I am a third generation Detroiter. Actually, I would say a second, second born here uh, okay. generation. So well, actually, no, actually, I guess you would say first generation because my mom came here when she was three. Okay. My, my grandparents immigrated from Alabama. I'm sorry, migrated. They didn't uh -huh. come into the country. They came from another part of the country, from Alabama. What part of Alabama? Because Alabama is... Alabama is one of those states where there's a yes. lot of Detroiters from Alabama around here. Montgomery, Alabama. Mm, looking for, yes, looking for better opportunities like many, many black people did. Okay, so let's go into your grandparents' move and what you know a little bit about it. So before we get into the move, Montgomery, Alabama. What what did they do down in Montgomery? Have you visited? What what was the town like? Uh, yes. What did, year? I visited and actually they were... Um, home housekeepers my grandmother was housekeeper um sharecroppers uh, my great-grandparents were and so they just wanted again a better opportunity so my grandfather moved here he only had a third grade education oh. he was functionally literate oh. uh, but he still was able to make it he was a truck driver and so he would he would carry loads all across the country i have no idea but the grace of god that he was able to do it because he couldn't read but he was a he was a very very smart man and encouraged my parents to, uh, my mom and her siblings to go on to college. And he said he would pay for them because he did not want anybody to repeat what he had gone through. And he was a visionary. I wish they had taken up uh, some of his vision because he thought way back in the 50s and the 60s, he was telling them, you know, you all need to go to New York and buy clothes and bring them back here and, and sell them wholesale. You know, it's like these places that we see now, like hey, Orman so, Mills. Yeah, back in the day. So he, your, your granddad would have would have opened up the game for boosting out here. <laughs> well, not why. quite, but you not know. Boosting. Yeah, yeah. Le legally. Legally. I know. Sometimes when I come here, you gotta say, I'm a booster. And it's like, it'll sell, even though you got it for the real price. It's like, this is a discount. Like, yes. <laughs> legally. So 
Interesting, interesting. And do you think that that was because he was traveling the country and he saw some different things and saw some opportunities? Well, you know what? Probably so, because he was a truck driver and he also worked down at the Eastern Market in the meatpacking company. So he was around a lot of our, our white brothers and sisters and just listening to different things that they did. And mm. so he, they liked him and he would just listen out. So even though, again, he did not necessarily have the education, he was really smart. He would pick up on what the people were doing. That naturally just moves me over to your grandmother. What was your grandmother's personality like? Oh, man, she was super strong and just very resourceful, very resourceful, hilarious, a hilarious woman. And she was a cook. She was a housekeeper, um, could make a lot of money had she done her own catering because she was a fantastic cook. But she was, she was the one who even brought me to faith in Christ. She was just such a strong woman. My mother would tell me stories of how she would be so creative. She would go down to the Eastern Market and get uh, sacks of uh, paper sacks, potato sacks, and make slips out of them. I don't know. She would, she would make sure to, to treat them somehow with some types of liquid to make them soft so that they would have, have slips. And she would also just, she sold. She was self-taught. And she would sew their outfits, and they didn't look like they were homemade. So very creative, very creative. All right. Now, Easter Market, you touched on a couple times through your dad working there and your granddad working there. Right, and my grandmother. Your grandma getting different resources there. So growing up, were you one of those people, as as Easter Market is going through a lot of changes of the past, I say, 10 years, were you one to visit Easter Market as a child? I would go down there. As a matter of fact, my brother, who was a year my junior, began working there when he was 11, selling bananas. My grandfather got him that job. So, yes, he was a hustler. So it's just kind of like hustle in our blood, you know? <laughs> okay. okay. What What do you remember about, like, that Eastern Market in, I remember just Eastern Market in the 90s felt different than it does today, but, like, 80s, 90s, like, what stood out? What are some of the differences to today where Easter Market is? Well, definitely it felt more like an open market. Um, mm -hmm. Back in, in the 80s, it, it felt like you were kind of like at a farm stand, and, and it was one shed. Um, there were, Then they, they expanded to the several sheds, but it's a little bit more refined now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Okay. Okay. Now, one of the things I remember from back in the day, you could you could bargain like with the person like your brother. Yes. You know, he was, was a like, he was a master at that. Okay, so you could be like, <laughs> "Look, dude, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come. I want to get all these ears of corn, sir." So was it uh, more of an open field for uh, the the farmers from the region? And was it a relationship with those farmers? Did your granddad kind of know some of these people? Oh yeah, that's how he got my brother the job because uh, he knew them. Okay. And they trusted my grandfather, so they trusted to hire this kid. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, moving over to your parents, and I'm guessing this may, is this mom's side, dad's side? This is mom's side. So my okay. dad's side is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh, ain't that something? Mm -hmm. When did they make the move this way? Oh, man, my, my dad was, he said, nine, I think it was. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he had an accent and everything. He was yeah, yeah. They were making fun of they him. They were. You're right. It's so funny that you said that because he said when they they would throw rocks at him, he said, "Y'all, oh, y'all quit chunking them rocks at me." Like, what you say? <laughs> chunking <laughs> them, <laughs> chunking them rocks. Exactly. When they throw another rock at him. <laughs> you country. <laughs> I got yeah. here two years. <laughs> 
So, uh, what part of town? What neighborhoods? Uh, what neighborhood did your mom live in? What neighborhood did your dad live in? My mom lived on the north end, so she grew, grew up on Oakland and Tuxedo. Okay. And then my dad was an Inkster. Mm, okay. All right. Definitely different cultures. Yeah. Definitely different cultures. Uh, the North End and your mom's journey. What around? What time was this? This was. She was born in forty one. Hmm. So forties, fifties. 60s. So she was like in high school with some of those Motown people and everything because some of those Motown people went to Northern. She she was. She was, um, I think she told me she was there um, around the time Diana Ross was there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my mom came out 50, I I can't remember what time she came out. She came out early. She she kept skipping her younger years, so I can't calculate it from her age, but she got uh, advanced, promoted. They they had half grades back then, so she got advanced three half grades. And, and now I have to tell most people that Northern High School, right now, it's the DIA, it's Detroit International Academy, I believe. It's a, a all-girls school mm-hmm. now. But at one point in time, Northern High School was one of those anchor high schools in the community. A lot of culture, a lot of people just went there. I mean, you just look at the design of it. Even with DIA, you can look up, it's encrusted onto the building, the Northern High School uh, logo and everything. It, it just had a Northern had a shadow that existed. Have you ever been to one of those reunions for Northern and, and seen your mom interact with some of those people? I don't know. My mom didn't go to Northern. That was her neighborhood high that school. That was her neighborhood school. Yeah, though. that was her neighborhood okay. school. So, yeah, so right. Mm-hmm. She was in high school, like I said, around the time of um, Diana Ross, but she went to Cass. My mom oh, went so to Oh, so that's why she was in school. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh-huh. okay, so Cass Tech, definitely. That's definitely a tradition. So that that connects your mom with so many different people. Did your yeah. dad go to Cass as well? He didn't. He went to Easter High. Easter High. Mm-hmm. Okay. When did they cross and meet paths? At Wednesday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. She tutored him in Spanish. Mm. So they Ain't became friends. And then he started talking to her because my mom was a party girl. Okay. Now, do you think that that's just what your dad says or was like that first tutoring session? He was like, yo. <laughs> well, I don't <laughs> How do you say... <laughs> Phone number in Spanish. I don't know if he was trying <laughs> L- to get in. L- phone number. It was so funny. <laughs> but you know, actually, I don't know if he was trying to push up on her, but he was he was dating somebody when he asked her to tutor him. So I don't know. Hey, it, you know. But the boy. other woman didn't win out. So. <laughs> I know. It's like he had a change of heart. He was like, oh man. Yeah. It was like L phone number. L, L date. <laughs> L break up. <laughs> Wayne State. Uh, Wayne State's definitely had a tradition dealing with uh, the challenges of black students, especially at that time, I'm guessing, in that era. Um, What was their Wayne State journey like? You know, they really had a good time because of their black enclave. My mother always liked to tell the stories about them hanging out in the mart room. You know, that's where the black people hung out. They played cards and party, you know, in between classes, sometimes during class. But, um, and, and they both were in the fraternity. My dad was in the fraternity. Uh, he passed in 2005. So he's Omega Psi Phi. My mom's an Alpha Kappa Alpha woman. And so that community there was really a good thing for them to be able to be supported. My dad was a history professor. He taught black history, but he didn't learn that at Wayne State. He was self-taught. So that kind of tells you, you know, kind of the climate there. Yeah, they weren't I, even venturing into, yeah. of course, trying to teach any of those classes. Yeah, where where was your dad a professor at? 
Oakland Community College. OCC. Yes, he started in 1969. Mm. Okay, in 69. So I can only imagine in 69 being a black history professor, you probably be around the city and people bump into your dad like, hey, man. All the time. You told all me about? The, yes, all the time. And before he taught at, at OCC, he taught at Central. And, and one of his oh, oh, oh. one of his most famous students was Wendell Anthony Jr., mm. uh, NAACP president. And yep. so uh, he he tells a story. You know, I definitely don't want to speak for for Reverend Anthony, but he'll tell the story about the influence that my dad had on him as it relates to Black history because he was one of his professors, um, his professors, his teacher at Central High School. What, was your dad one of those uh, back then in the 60s? I know you can only look at pictures of him, but was he like the guy that was coming in with the dashiki? Yeah. <laughs> he would wear some sometimes, but my dad was pretty conservative. Okay. It's funny that he was conservative in his dress, but less so in his thoughts. Okay, so, yeah. so he'd come in with the dashiki, like, look, brother. <laughs> look, brother, you're supposed to be. Look, brother? No, like, no. Like, who is this? It's like I'm just going to Central. No, 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 but he definitely, he definitely would challenge them for for not being buffoonish, you know, trying not to make sure to make something of themselves. So okay, that was his mission. He also taught at, at Wayne State um, during the Oprah Brown program, mm. and then he got recruited to Cranbrook, which we now know as Cranbrook Kingswood, the private school mm -hmm. out in West Bloomfield, to teach Black History wow. then back in the '70s. So, wow, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't even realize the interest to teach black history in the 70s at a school like that was such few, few black people, well, you, even to this day. Yes, definitely. And it, like you that. know, it was a handful then. But again, that was on the heels of the civil rights movement, okay. you know, and so like, man, people like, were hungry. They were hungry. It's like white, it's like a, a, a class of like 95% white students are going to get black history yes, more black and, students and, too. Yes, like, and they did. They did. And they learned. My dad likes to tell the story. And when he was at Oakland Community College, most times he integrated the classroom. He not only taught black history, but he taught American history as well and fully integrated all of American history. He would tell me of times when students would say, when are we going to get to real American history? Because my dad would integrate about the Native Americans and African-Americans, all aspects of humanity yeah, who helped well, to build the United States. But technically, American history is black history. It's just tragic in the atrocities that go right, along with it. Right. Um, even looking ways. at the uh, Supreme Court hearings now of Kavanaugh for the acceptance, it's like you, you look at this and you think of these journeys in America of the interpretations of the Constitution as said by the Supreme Court, but Oh man! Right, oh, right. Man. So to get all into that, right? It's like, okay, are you guys trying to be justices or are you trying to be lawyers? What is going yeah. on? Here? Yeah. So now, now with that, your mom. What was your mom doing? Doing uh, as your dad was uh, shaping the minds of the pupils and letting them know the enlightenment of Africa and Marcus Garvey and W. E. B. Du Yes, yes. Well, my mom, very much a, a social activist herself, so she worked for several Democratic campaigns. So she, she just introduced us even early to just politics. And so she had various jobs. So in addition to that type of volunteer work, she was a social worker. She always kept part-time jobs because she wanted to be home with us wow. when we came home from school. So okay. she started doing some full-time work later, but she would she worked for research companies, uh, again, as a social worker, she also was a substitute teacher, so she did various, various things. 
Now, you said worked on political campaigns as a volunteer, which they're one of the biggest assets, like going door to door, getting the money up, and really just getting the word out. Uh, who were some of the campaigns, uh, or what campaigns was she working on? Who were some of the figures she was working with as the scope of political leadership in Detroit has completely transitioned? Right, definitely. Oh, wow, back in the day, um, Ken Cockrell Sr. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. Um, Kay Everett, she ended up on mm. her staff when um, huh. she worked for city council. Okay. So those are the main two. And a lot, a lot I don't even remember because I was really young. And I just remember mm -hmm. like being four or five, just helping her to pass out literature. Okay. But she did. She was um, very active in the NAACP Sipping Committee. Mm. So just, again, always exposing us to what was going on around mm. the city. Mm -hmm. Now, for you and your journey, and with all of this influence, you said you mentioned your brother. Yeah. Uh, how many other siblings? One. A okay, sister. so it's just uh, so it's you, your sister, and your brother. Who's the oldest? My sister is about oh, okay. eleven months. Okay. So we're really the same age. <laughs> I'm sure she has a whole different take on that. I'm sure she has a whole different take on that. It was like, oh, I used to have all the orange books, <laughs> and this one came. Yes, she, she does like to tell the story when we, because we're only 11 months apart, of course, we are the same age for like two and a half weeks. So <laughs> when we were both, yeah, we were both three, she told my mother, how is she three and I'm three? I'm supposed to be the oldest. You know, exactly. I just said, uh, when you get older, you'll understand. So. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Stepping in on it. Yes. Stepping in on it. Yes. So. So that whole uh, growth, uh, growing up as a kid, what neighborhood did you all live in? Finkel, Wyoming area. So west side of Detroit. Mm, okay, so Finkel, Wyoming. That is, I would say, the neighborhood high school over there. I guess you kind of split between a couple. Actually, it was Central. We were closer to Mumford, but Central was our neighborhood high school. For real? But we all went to Cass. Okay, because I was going to say, wouldn't that be... I was thinking, yeah, I was definitely thinking that it possibly could be like Muffer or Pooley, but I guess right. you're right. I guess it could be. It seems like Central is far away from Finkel and Wyoming, but I think they did it that back then by zip code, so still okay. four eight two three eight. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, Cast Tech. Uh, what was your Cast Tech journey like? Is I've been interviewing a lot of Cast Tech folks recently. All right. Yes, mm -hmm. movers and shakers. CT in the house. Oh, I had an incredible time at. At Cast Tech, I was a senior class officer, so just really active in the school, and uh, just it was a great journey. I was in science and arts. I got tricked into that. That was actually the honors curriculum at Cast. My counselor tricked me into it because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to learn how to sew, and so I signed up for fashion design, and I'm not an artist at all. So she says, well, why don't you get to science and arts? That way you can get some science and you have some art. And I go, oh, sure. And did not know. Again, it was the honors curriculum. So I'm at the time, those AP classes were just being introduced at the time. So the yeah. honors classes, of course, were the precursor to that. And, man, I was never so happy to get a C out of geometry. And it was wow. only because of the two valedictorians who ended up being our valedictorians. We were in 10th grade. But one sat in front of me, Manish Tiwari and Heidi Schultz. I'll never mm. forget. They okay. sat there and they helped me in geometry because I hey. didn't have a clue. <laughs> I'll tell you. I, I was having some of the same journey in geometry. Yeah. What is this? Yeah, yeah. What that was tough. That was tough. More, more artistic I am than you know, I guess you have to be artistic to be in geometry, look at shapes, but my uh -huh. mind just didn't work that way. 
So uh, with that, was your sister a grade above you or in the same grade as you? No, she was, she was above, a grade above me. We were okay. all there at the same time. So mm -hmm. she came out 86, 87, and my brother in 88. And mm -hmm. I love that she was there because we were very, very good friends. Like we have to, we would have to show people our driver's licenses to prove that we were sisters because we mm -hmm. got along that well. Wow. So and and she was my biggest cheerleader. I think next to my husband she is even to this day. And so I was more the intellectual type. You mm -hmm. know, I was in National Honor Society, of course I'm running to be class officer. So she was my campaign manager because we okay. had to run in your junior year and, and it was a great benefit because she was homecoming queen of her senior year and hmm. most spirited and most popular so okay so she, she helped, she helped me juice. yes she yes she let me her credit she let me her credibility yes. so <laughs> yeah 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 so i worked out well okay all right after cass where were you at in your journey i was headed to Howard and notice I said headed because I did not end up going mm. there. Okay. I had won the housing lottery and everything and because at that time it was hard to get a space, you know, housing at Howard. But sort of yeah, so but there was one counselor that said, Well, Rhonda, I know you're interested in journalism and Wayne State is having this little seminar for scholarships. Just go. I'm not sure if the scholarships are to Wayne State. I think she knew she was just trying to get me there. Mm -hmm. But when I went the director, they had a, a program there at the time, the Journalism Institute for Minorities. Now it's called the Journalism Institute for Media Diversity when affirmative action was eradicated, you know, on the law, in the law. And at the time they were like, oh, we're looking for students just like you. And I was just thinking they were just saying that because I had only served on my newspaper staff for half a term. I quit because the teacher tried to totally rewrite what I wrote and I just in protest quit. So, um, but they were for real. I went ahead and applied to the program and I was one of two of my graduating class that year, all the schools in the metro area to be offered a full scholarship to Wayne State oh, University okay. wow. and to have a four summer internship at Detroit News. Mm. And so at that time I said, I don't think the Lord would bless me. Even though I didn't, I hardly went to church. I was, I'm like, this was like some mature thinking, seriously, because I said, I don't think the Lord would bless me if I turn this scholarship down because it was, a, again, full ride. I didn't have to pay for books or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's where I ended up at Wayne State because of that. And one of the best decisions I could have ever made. Now, the culture of Wayne State even then, I was telling, I was telling my kid cousin now, as Wayne State is really making that transition to be, I would say, a school that's kind of competing on the level of Definitely surpassing Oakland and and getting the fresh out of high school students. But Wayne State, most of my life, as I remember when I was younger, like in the 90s and some of the 80s, it was a lot of adult students there. Oh, wow. um, so what was that feel to be in class with so many adult students? Whereas now, it's, it's a lot different now. Like Wayne State kind of feels like an in-campus uh, like school that, that's preparing for programming for 18-year-olds and everything like that. But I can only imagine with you walking in at 88, 89, that it, it was certain things happening on campus. Like I remember, uh, you know, definitely uh, for African-American studies, that fight and everything. But um, what was it like for you being there on a campus that is, like, really serious about school? It was 
it was a really good thing. Uh, in the, I didn't really as, experience the more adult learner. And I say more adult because, of course, technically at 18, we were an adult. Uh, yeah. Even though we didn't quite act that way. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but I took most of my classes during the day. So a lot of okay. the adult students were there in the evening, in the evening time. Yes. Right, right. So uh, it still had it still had those elements of uh, campus life because of, again, different affiliations with fraternities and sororities, particularly that being my experience. And so we had that hanging out in the student center. And then also with the student sitting in, I was a part of that. Mm. Um, in '89, so, so yes, you were a part get, of the yes, I was to get, to get the African American Studies Department yes. there, yes. and that's one of those moments in history. I guess uh, a lot of people speak of it, but you know, this this brings Errol Henderson to life. Yes. It brings uh, Daryl Dawsey. It brings mm -hmm. uh, Ken Cockrell Jr., Jr. which yes. naturally brought Ken Cockrell Sr. Right. Uh, right. Ken Cockrell's Jr.'s wife. Uh, it, right. It's like a lot of different people that were involved exactly. in, in ensuring this. And it's a part of Detroit history that, you know, I sort of as a child, it's like a snapshot I remember. But now as I hear the stories, I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, that's interesting. It was very interesting. I, the only reason I left was because my grandfather died. And so I had to had to leave uh, like three days early. But I had a unique perspective at the time I was working for the student newspaper. And so I was writing stories for the newspaper from an inside perspective. Mm -hmm. So that was that was really, really uh, interesting and just nice to be able to be a part of history, not just being in the sit-in and, and being able to say that I was one of the students, <clears throat> excuse me, to help bring that to pass, that we actually have not just the Center for Black Studies, but the Department of Africana Studies. Because at first it was just a center. You could take classes and you wouldn't get credit, full credit for, for them. But we wanted to establish as a full, a full department. But also from the perspective of being able to write our perspective, that we weren't just these angry black kids, that we were actually smart, you know, in their reading, Franz Fanon and, you know, other types of philosophers. Um, we were really well read and, and we made demands that um, obviously they had to reckon with. Now, when you talk about this and that fight, and now we even look at it to, to this day, uh, and some of those professors, uh, like we, we think of uh, Bobby Kempense, uh or Mr., I, I guess he'd be Professor Kempense Cheika, um, the, the department itself, and I've taught in some of the Africana Studies classes now, and it, it, I guess the consciousness is shifting where even that understanding and that fight for it to exist is so different as most times I'll go to any of those classes, it's predominantly white students. Wow, I was unaware of that. But I'm not surprised because of the student population. Mm -hmm. But they need that. They need to know that. Again, going back to my dad, he talked about him integrating the room and how hostile so many of his white students were. But they had to stay because African American, I mean, African, I mean, excuse me, American, American history, history, right, was required. So they could not leave the class, but just the transformation because their eyes were opened. They weren't able to be exposed to it any other way. And so, even though now you're surprised, like, oh man, these are majority white. I think that's a good thing if you still have the professors who are committed to telling the truth. Yeah, 
it definitely takes a different type of commitment to allow me to uh, get into your classroom and, and, and share my two pennies. Right. Or whatever is being said. That's true. About the racial dynamics in America. That does. How did, how did your dad feel looking at, like, his daughter in this, like, social advocacy activist action about something that he's very passionate about. How, what, well, what he, were your talks he with was, your dad at that? He, he was very proud of me. I mean, it was, again, it was just the uh -huh. way he, he groomed us. And uh -huh. so, um, yeah, when I told him I wanted to be there, they were all for it. You know, it was <laughs> no hesitation. Great. I didn't ask. I just said, this. I'm doing this, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Okay. Now, after that victory, because that's another thing, too, that I think it's hard to conceptualize. The older I get, the more the more I'm humbled by just trying to empathize with you all. Because to be so young and to fight a power structure, because Wayne State was not, you know, Wayne State was definitely not for that at no, all. No, no. But to, to come up with a course of action. Uh, exhaust many other options and then choose the sit-in option and then that be successful from the minds of like 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds, that has to change the trajectory of what you think is possible even when I talk to like Errol Henderson to this day, mm -hmm. Daryl Dawsey to this day, somebody like you to this day, it has to have an impact. Like what impact do you think that that has had on a lot of the people that were involved in that to just know that like, hey, you can use activism to actually change them. You know, it's funny that you say that because it wasn't until you just said that that I really focused on that, that we were really young and we were um, very, very idealistic, but not just idealistic like this idea in a vacuum. I mean, we had substance to what mm -hmm. we were saying. And it does make you think that things are possible when you hit those power structures, because that's what we did. We did the Helen Newberry Joy building. That was yeah. where the student services were, where people went to get transcripts. We shut that down. That shut down a big part of the operations there, and we were not going to, to move. And so the media was watching, and, and so the, the school was not going to do something that was going to make them look bad. They said, hey, we have to take these these students seriously. And it wasn't like they were just spouting off all this black power rhetoric. Yeah, there was some of that, but it was intellect behind that. It was mm -hmm. like these these kids are smart. And so it just now that I think about it and I've looked at other things that I've done in my life, and I said, wow, you know, it things can't happen. They really can't happen. You don't just have to sit back and say, I have to wait until I'm this age. You can make a difference at whatever age you are. Yeah, and, and I would say the argument almost from my generation um, behind that, especially sometimes to young people now, that argument of like, what, what will marching do? What will protesting do? Like, will it really even make a change? Just seeing the true impact of what that means. Even right now in uh, what's happening with Colin Kaepernick, and mm -hmm. certain people are saying like, wow, you know, this is a good embrace, but it's still hard to conceptualize because what happened with that fight was very concrete of, this will impact that, and this will change. So it's like the, the right. this rally uh, right now. A lot of people are up in arms, and I, you know, it's it's I'm I'm almost complacent. I, I don't know uh, what these conversations with somebody like your father would have been, but um, it's another uh, black man that was murdered from an off-duty police officer walking into their home. Um, 
walked into the wrong apartment building and murdered a man and things like that. It's like, I, I don't, you know, and I know it's probably going to be people like, let's march and let's rally. But in my mind, I have such complacency, like, what would that really change? Because in my mind, it's like blue supports blue. And really, if you're an officer, you kind of have at will to murder anybody, especially if they're black. That, yeah, and that's you know, where my mind is. And I understand different people see different perspectives. Yes. Like, you've won. You've seen yes. structure change. Right. Whereas most of my life, I've seen... I've seen, you know, I've seen, I mean, how many countless examples of, yeah, police officer killed black man, police officer gets, uh, they'll give him administrative paid leave, and police officer will get transferred to some new department yeah. in like two months. That's, yeah. that's yeah. just what yeah, I sure. assume will happen mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. marching. Like, right, I right. don't even know what course of action looks like. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And I find myself sometimes struggling with that. But I think what we have to recognize is that we cannot only be reactive because that's what we're seeing a lot when we see people marching and we see people protesting. We need to be proactive and we can't be proactive because we recognize that these situations do happen. And so what what are we working toward? What are some things that we want to see as the outcome to this as opposed to just being mad and being loud? And sometimes you do need to just let that out, you know, because you are, you may be enraged, but after the rage, after you've let the rage out, then what? What are you going to do? You know, and I, I think and it's not easy. It's not an easy thing. It's very, very complex. Uh, and I, I think that um, we have to be open to various conversations and, and various people because, you know, we even we hear now, OK, we need all our allies, but then everybody's suspicious of different types of allies, you know, so it's, it's a lot of that, but I definitely think there always has to be a plan. We need to stop just reacting to things and really, really seek to get to the heart of the matter. Um, you know, people always like to say um, money is the root of all evil. No, the Bible says the, the love of money is the root of all evil. And you see everything around here, that is the deal. You know, people typically hate people because they see them as being a threat to whatever power structure they're in and therefore their bottom line and their money. And so a lot does have to do with trying to, you know, seek to change people's hearts. We we need a spiritual revival. I am convinced that that is the only thing that's going to make a difference. You can't legislate morality. You can't legislate all these things. People need to know a difference. And for me, that difference maker is Jesus Christ, seriously. Okay, now, as you talk about that, that naturally just leads me to... Um speak about in your father you said he passed condolences in 2005 yes and being someone that's very learned in a lot of these black struggles is it, everything you were saying just made me think and one thing it definitely goes into spirituality but also just embracing more of the histories of movements that were effective to bring back concrete change i think that may need to be documented as you talk about yes. how to make these plans of action because there's a lot of movements that are brought up through the eyes of tragedy and crises, mm -hmm. but not necessarily through the eyes of like, oh, no, no, this, this went down. You know, um, even in this, uh, in Aretha Franklin's passing, and they're talking about what happened at one of the mosques in Harlem during the 70s where, where uh, Aretha Franklin and Jesse Jackson and many people stood where they said, hey, this ain't about to go down here, uh, where police officers were thinking about storm in a mosque but mm -hmm. they chose not to and i'm like man i don't know this story but right, i know a lot right. of the stories of the tragedy and the crises but a lot of the fights that have been effective 
right you know i'm not as aware of and maybe even gathering that history as we talk about it is something that we need to put in our own books and build and distribute like okay this is what they chose and this is how they did it um now with that i was going to go to your father with his passing what what was kind of his perspective on uh the racial climate of america uh information that needs to be taken as it was definitely near and dear to his heart can you give like a like, where was he at in that thought process of, of years of looking at it, uh, having different people that he's taught and shared the information with? What was his take on things, you think, towards his passing? Well, he was a bit despondent, actually, unfortunately, because he had seen the ebb and flow mm. of society and how things would improve and how we would have, you know, slides, backslides, that type of thing. But when he would see people who were still passionate, like one of his his students who went on to become, uh, had a, got a doctorate degree, Kenny Anderson, and he would see Reverend Wendell Anthony, and he would see people like that, that would still give him those glimmers of hope. But he, he was a bit despondent with what he saw, actually. But he still wanted to encourage others to continue on. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, with that... Um as he grew into that, was it? Uh, did, did he change any of his readings? Did he? Did he? Um, did he think to himself like it may be a new course of action? I know one of the things my uncle Joe, who was uh, the first black judge of Ohio, I'm sure mm. that is, <laughs> but, but um, he was on his deathbed for most of two thousand and eight. But he didn't pass away until Barack Obama went had a let. It was like a weird thing. Wow. Like, so and he was holding on. Yeah, he was there. <laughs> I want to see this. Like, I gotta, I gotta at least, yeah, I gotta, yeah. I gotta take this snapshot. Yeah, and it can be cool. Yeah, you know. So, uh, do you think that that victory could have, as you even go through the um, Smithsonian Museum? Uh, of African American history, which I have it, yet it, to go to, it wraps yes. with. The election of Barack Obama, mm-hmm. which I believe is a is a unique moment in time. But now, as we look back in this 2018, you know, 10 years since then, mm-hmm. you know, when more panels will be added in the in the exhibit ex- expands, I don't know what's going to go next. But I definitely know that snapshot in time for a lot of people of your dash generation could have meant so much more. Yeah, I can't even really say what that means to, you know, like my uncle Edgar. Wow, yes, I'm sure that was the highlight. Like, they never thought they would see that in their lifetime. I never thought I would right. see that in my lifetime, right? Exactly. And just to know that, you know, before the, the current president, that was the only president that my sons knew, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, which, which that kind of brings me to what I thought we'd talk a lot more about. You have a your business is built in health, but most of what you do, I think, is through family. You you prepare meals, you prepare lessons. Yes. Uh, you're coaching up your husband and your sons. Explain a little bit about how family and business tie together for you. Yes. So I my business is Soul Delights, and I help people to attain and maintain their health naturally. And I've been able to do that, help others outside of my home because I have I have helped my family over the years. First of all, starting with myself, just having so many ailments, chronic ailments, you know, really, really bad acne and uh, 
costochronditis, which is inflammation in the chest, arthritis, just a host of issues that doctors would give me just medicines to mask the pain as opposed to going deep. And so I just did a lot of research myself on natural ways of healing and a lot had to do with nutrition and how you eat. And so, of course, when mom was on that plan, everybody got to be on that plan. So yeah. uh, my, my folks were a believer, particularly my husband. I had to go on this one plan where it called for organic fruits and vegetables. And he was saying, what can we get off of this? So, you know, so it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the plan was over and we went back, he could tell the difference mm-hmm. in the quality of organic versus non-organic. And so that, again, just expanded my research for us to be able to do things in an affordable way, you know, going to farmers markets and and utilizing farmers who have organic practices, but don't have the money to be able to be labeled that by the U.S. government because it costs a lot of money, but they still use natural pesticides and that type of thing. So, yeah, so that's what I do. I'm a health coach. I have online programs to help pe- help people. And right now, I'm, I'm finishing up my program right now to become a certified natural health practitioner. So Okay. Yes. All right. Now, how do people just get in contact with you? We got to give that right now. If people want to reach out to you, and then I'm going to get into more of the details that I know. Yes. And we can unpack it. Okay. Yes. They can reach me at my website www.souldelights, S-O-U-L-D-E-L-I-G-H-T-S dot com. Mm-hmm. That's my website. And you can also send an email at info at souldelights.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I'm packing it. Your juggle of raising the quality of life, living naturally, but also homeschool. Yes. Is uh, such the 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 a practice in life that is more in line with our African culture. Uh, I would say more in line with most cultures globally, and at one point in time, more in line with how things were done here in America. Yes. But people look at it like it's like you're living probably in a in a I don't even know what like you're like you're living in a polygamous household right. or something like that. Right. What are you doing? Exactly. So exactly. explain a little bit about what that is. And I think it's one of the coolest things. And I don't have children, but I always say like, man, it seems to be the optimum way of actually making sure you grow a child into what's happening. Yes, uh, it really, really works for our family. It's very beneficial. It was not my plan at all. Mm-hmm. I went to school at my master's degree in communication. I was uh, an instructor at Wayne County Community College teaching mm-hmm. speech. So I wanted to teach adults, but it was just a, a pull on my heart and, and my husband's heart. We really believe that's what the Lord was leading us to do. And it had to be the Lord because trust me, I wasn't trying to teach anybody's little ones, especially my own. Okay. So I quit my tenure job when my child was three and um, just started homeschooling him in, in preschool. And he did go to school because our commitment was to pray every year and see where God led us if we're going to continue on with homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were led to, to put him in Detroit Public School for second and third grade. But we pulled him out. Very good school, academically, less so socially and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was able to have both of those experiences 
And we were able to be more fortified in the decision that this is how God was leading us. Because yeah. I tell you, Kari, I only did it out of obedience. It was just a really, really rough time for me of um, really giving up my myself and being selfless, which is what we're called to do. We're called to serve each other. Definitely as parents, you, you're called to be selfless. You know, because you're raising this, these human beings to be able to be strong contributors of society. And in my case, as a Christian, to be strong contributors to the kingdom of God. So that, that's really important. And so it really worked out to be able to do that um, by having them in the home, not just teaching them academically, but being able to emphasize um, just our faith in, in integrating that into everyday affairs and also just teaching them life skills. And so, you know, some days we don't even focus so much so on the academics. We're trying to get your character together because your character stinks right now. So we're just going to focus right there and get till you get your attitude together because, it, it you know, the scripture that says, what does it gain a, a man to gain a whole world? What, you know, to, to you, you gain a whole world, but then you lose your soul. You know, what is that? You gain everything, so you have all this intellect, you have all these riches, but if you are spiritually and so in, in your soul, you're bankrupt. Hey, what's the what's the good? Because none of that mm -hmm. stuff is gonna last. Now, now, anytime too that that I come over, as you live across the street from my parents' home, yes, I'm generally seeing your sons outside, like playing or doing something, like active in kid activities too. Like, yes. And it may be those times when I come over, it's like it's not lesson time per se. Yes. But it may integrate with it. And that's the cool thing I think about it is that it allows a freedom where you're so present with who the pupil is that it goes beyond the structure of organization. Because a lot of the school institution, when I give this argument, when people say, well, education is this and education is that. And I'm like, okay, I hear you. But a lot of the educational model in America was built on changing the agricultural worker That's right. to an industrial worker. Exactly. So it's reasoning behind why it's so industrialized exactly. in systems. Yes. I mean, the, the reason why it's a bail is because, you know, Carnegie wanted you to respond to a bail of like, yo, man, it's time to shift. Yes. You know, exactly. like it, and, and that that takes away from who you are as an individual, as you said, to yeah. be able to pour in, you know, whatever is going on. Like I can definitely remember oftentimes, I mean, even up to college, like my mind was definitely not on whatever I'm doing and I would hammer through the lesson and get it. But maybe my mind is in a whole nother place where I could get fruitful, substantive value from a conversation right. or from a, Hey man, just chill. You need to go outside and run around. Exactly. And then come back. Yes. And then we can get back to this. Definitely. It's like, you know what? Thank you. Definitely. And that works. Having three boys. Sometimes we start the day off with recess because I need you to work off that energy yeah. in the very beginning. Yeah, I know and you're it, not trying to look at these multiplication pages, no, so why would exactly. I force it on you Exactly. You if your mind's and, not there? Exactly. And then the fresh air and the nature just really helps them to be able to focus more. Uh, oh, but we do have structure because that's just the type of person that I am. Mm -hmm. But I again, I, I tell people that I think homeschooling was more for me than it was for them because mm -hmm. it's helped me to learn to be flexible and really to trust the Lord that they belong to Him, that they're just in my care, you know, mm -hmm. I'm stewards of their life, but they belong to him. And so uh, I'm, I'm trusting each step of the way. But like I said, I was National Honor Society. I got a full scholarship to college. So I'm not trying to slack with my kids. You know, a lot of times people think that, well, oh, you're the parent. Well, you know, how, how do you not just, you know, how do you trust to give them the right grades? I'm like, uh, I'm just not going to pass them and then 
they end up just being a dummy. Like, they, they have to be successful adults. And also, like, I think, as you said, like, it still will be structure. But structure, you can build structure around a person. Or you can build structure to try to force that person into it. Right. Schools, even the best schools, kind of have to force the person into it because it's a body of so many of the pupils that it involves. Right, right. And it's definitely, again, the benefit for us, just comparing with my son, my oldest son had gone to school, we would have to reintegrate him into the family structure. Like, the whole life, our whole life was centered around school. Right. Mm -hmm. So we always oh, have to stop now. We have to go get him to come home, get him a snack. Now he has to do his schoolwork. Now he has to go to, mm -hmm. to sleep. We got to get up and do it all over again. Yeah. You know, so it's a little different now. Each child learns differently. And so I can tailor everything to each child. Like my youngest is not he's about to be nine. Last school year, he just really got a grasp of how to read, but he's really right brain. Like he's very creative, and he 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 just he yeah. figure out stuff. He he's very this this very critical thinker. He was ahead in math, but had he been in school because he could not read, he may have been held back. Mm -hmm. But that way, I I did hold him back with reading, but I let him go ahead and excel in the math. In the other subjects. Yes, exactly. So he knew those. that's your strong area. We just have to work a little bit more. And I chucked a lot of different curricula until I found the one that worked for him. That is cool. So that appreciation and that journey for your youngest picking up the lessons on where he's at and growing with where he's further advanced, pacing where he needs improvement, I, I can only imagine that you only get that one-on-one -on -one, uh, support in a homeschool-based environment, unless you're like one of those like child star entertainers and you have like a, a master teacher on the right, road with right, you, right. which is technically like home a homeschool environment. It is. It's, it's tutoring, one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it definitely is different now with the overcrowding of schools. I remember even when I was in elementary school and the schools weren't as crowded as they were now, but I was in fifth grade and I had my reading with the sixth graders. And mm -hmm. I was, because there was no one on my reading level when I was in the fifth grade. So they were able to make those types of provisions. Then I hear from, from friends who have children in public schools, they cannot necessarily make those accommodations now because there, there's so, so much crowding. But at least my teachers saw where I was and they didn't want to hold me back. So I was able to go ahead. And once I got to be the the what the sixth grade, that was like the highest grade. It was nowhere for me to go. So I was like in the reading room by myself with my teacher. But at least she saw that and she made that provision for me. But she could do that. She didn't have them. 30, 40 kids in the classroom. They mm -hmm. were only 20-something. So she could have control in, in, in the classroom and, and children just, and it was just a different day then. So. And, then and then also with that, um, I'm assuming you're introducing them to different things that are outside the means of what any school system would maybe want to introduce the child to just because they may be ready to accept lessons in, I don't know, psychology or physiology right. or Right. physics exactly in so, what's labeled as the second grade exactly but you can introduce it to them where that would never happen in right you know. right so we a couple of years ago they were interested and my husband wanted me to teach them greek so we did do the the alphabet but they were more interested in spanish so we're going to really delve into that but um my middle son was interested in arabic you know he's that's what he wanted to do because 
we do a lot of shopping in Dearborn, mm -hmm. restaurants, our chiropractor is there, and he see, he knows he sees a lot of Arab Americans, and so he says he wants to learn to speak that, and I just thought that was very astute of him, as opposed to being just so phobic, xenophobic, you know, mm -hmm. about other people. He's like, no, I want to learn this, and so we can do those things. We can explore those different aspects, so I definitely like that. When it's a nice day, we we do school outside or we'll go to the park. So we have those types of um, flexibility and it helps me again yeah. because I wasn't trying to teach little ones, but I actually enjoy it now. I think it was maybe two years ago. This is my 11th year. Yes. Mm -hmm. Homeschooling. So it was just two years ago. I could actually say I enjoyed it before it was totally out of obedience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now uh, with that and with that being said, how does this incorporate with your business? Do they assist in your business? Are they learning that as well? Um, how does that interplay? Definitely, definitely learning it. Uh, my children, particularly the middle one, will be able to read a label, a food label, and tell you that you shouldn't be eating that because of what's in it, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But they definitely are encouraging me. They're my sous chefs when I do do food for people. Mm -hmm. So yes, and they incorporate a lot of what they've seen me do and, and teach other people into what they do because most of them can cook fully. You know, my cool. oldest is, he'll be 16 next week, so definitely he can, he cooks dinner a mm. lot of times. Okay. But the um, the other, the, the younger two basically do breakfast most, they can do some things, um, nine, well, he'll be, be nine, but almost nine and 11. So yes, definitely. They are very supportive, very aware of the language, things to look for, and they are still growing in their self-control. So, you know, they like good food, and they like to eat good food. So, mm -hmm. so even though they can read labels and say what not to eat, we're still working on how much they eat. So, mm -hmm. but they're growing boys, so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, with this into the business, uh, and just the workflow of homeschooling, being a wife, uh, being a sister, a daughter, like, how has growing your business come into play with this? I'm, I'm convinced of two things. I want to make money. It doesn't make sense to have a business if you don't want to make money. Let me just say that. But my goal is not, oh, my business is going to make me this multi-millionaire. I think more so, you know, we hear a lot now, and I think a lot of what you do is consider social entrepreneurship. Like, mm -hmm. you really, really want to have an impact on the community. So a lot of what I do is that, because I find definitely in African-American community, we are not educated with how to eat healthy and to be able to do it, and it still tastes good. It doesn't have to taste like straw, right? We, we don't have a lot of grocery stores in the community. A lot of people eat get their meals from gas stations and, you know, the corner store, that type of thing. So my mind is a lot of what I do is education. So I do go into the school. So with I I can do a lot of that outside of the school time, you know, and I'm very limited with that. Even with my appointments, I'll do consultation calls on the phone. I limit the days that I do that. And I mostly do them in the morning so that I do have my time space because my, my family, that's first. They come first. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, yeah, so I'm able to do that in and on weekends. So I, I believe that when I talked about, I know God led me to homeschooling. I believe it was because I, I know God has called me to do so much more outside of my home. 
and having my children outside of my home and all that he's called me to do. Truly, my children, I think, would be neglected. But but God knew in his economy that he needed me to be home with them. So when I am gone a lot on the weekends or in the evenings, my children are okay. They don't feel neglected because mama's been with them all along. Now, when we talk about that and uh, that relationship as well, because faith plays a huge part in everything that you do yes. in your household. Christianity yes. plays a big role. Yes. And Christianity definitely just in any community, but especially in the black community, depending upon where people are at and their journeys and their own interpretation of it, their right. journeys in church and who the pastor is, that they've had relationships with their family and everything, it can be different viewpoints. Definitely. Uh, what, what role has that played into your success in life and embracing the joys of life? Well, definitely. It's definitely the Lord who has, I mean, he's my rock, seriously. I have been one of those like a lot of people that I know, very self-determined, you know, strong black woman and want things my way. And the more I have submitted to the mandates and, and just being obedient to the Lord, the, the greater I have seen that I can do through following him. Like, for instance, even just with my website, you know, early in the day, pulling that together, um, not being able to afford to pay someone to do it, like literally not knowing how to do things. And I would have a dream and he was, and, and I would do it and it would come to pass. Like serious, Kari. So just seeing how God like let me know this is me. I'm doing this because he's supernaturally telling me what to do and how to do it and, and bringing clients and connections that I can only imagine. So, yes. Faith plays a huge role. When I get tired and I'm saying, oh, this is not working, God reminds me of those times that he's giving me visions, he's giving me dreams, he's told me exactly what to do, and I'm like, how did that work? Of course, because the God of the universe told you it is going to work, you know, and it did. So those types of things uh, really keep me going. I, I'm, I'm really um, even drawn to the fact that, again, this is a business, but it's also a ministry for me. Um, it is a for profit business, but it's a ministry. Um, there, if you look in the Bible, First Corinthians twelve, Romans twelve, it talks about different spiritual gifts. And one of my spiritual gifts is the gifts of healing. And so we think of people, you know, the faith healers on TV that just want to send me some money. I'm gonna bless this cloth and send it to you. Know that kind of it's a racket. You know, it's a racket. Um, and, and so a lot of times I don't even like to share that because I don't want to be associated with that. But just if I'm talking to somebody and they share with me some ailment they have and something comes to me to share with them and it works, I know that's not me because I did not have that knowledge. OK, it just drops in my spirit. And I have done that on several occasions and even lay hands on people when they've been healed. So. I take this very seriously, what I do. I'm not just going on trying to get a whole bunch of money or anything like that because I'm really clear that God has given me this gift. He wants me to steward it well, and that's why I'm real careful. I'm not trying to follow every trend. You know, they're doing this. This works for them. Open up this business. Offer this service. No, I am really before the Lord, seeking his face for him to tell me what to do because time and time again, he's already done it, and it's, it's, it's proven you know, he's proven to be the one who's behind it. There's nothing to do with me. He's chosen to use me as an instrument. And and in that instrument, you're also in a loving marriage. 
and you have three yeah. sons too. So yeah. it's a lot of testosterone bouncing around. Yes, your house, so, a lot, so. a lot. Mama has to get me time all the time. <laughs> so it's very good I'm involved with my sorority. I could have, you know, various times just with the women folk away from the testosterone. Yes. 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 <laughs> so, so, but uh, having that marriage and having faith play a role in that, and business play a role in yes, that, yes. Uh, homeschooling, it's it's a lot of passions you're pursuing. So, having a husband that's supportive of that, he's very supportive. How uh, how does that relationship play out? As so many people, you know, uh, black, white, just in America itself, like just the 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 balance of having a courtship, a companionship, yes. where it's like. Partners support one another. Yeah, what, what has yeah. that been like for you? Oh man, amazing! That is my friend. We we've been married twenty years, mm-hmm. and it's gotten better over the years. Like he is my friend. I I miss him when he's at work. The kids do too. It's funny. I I wait for him to come home. He can't wait to get home, which is good. It's a testimony. And that's why I like to share because you don't hear a lot of that now. You know, you hear 20 years, you hear people just tolerating one another. But I really enjoy him as my friend. We have fun together. We laugh together. He, We're both on the ministerial staff at our church. So we do marriage counseling together, lay counseling uh, for members. And he is just my friend. He, he likes to joke and say, I'll be Stedman, you know, <laughs> you can go and do it because he knows God has given me a lot to do um, that, you know, has yet to been really unleashed because I'm very clear that my boys are, are first, you know, in terms of pouring my energy, you know, apart from, of course, my, my husband. So, yeah, but we make sure to get our date nights in every week. So, so what do you think the companionship in the, in the click and uh, the connection that you all have? And now you're into marriage counseling. Yes. And so many people just, it, it evades them. What it, what has been the magic with what you all have? Well, I think that people don't recognize what love really is. Hmm. You know, love is action. Yeah, you had those squishy feelings and romance and stuff. But if you base it on that, you you just doomed for failure because it's fleeting. You know, somebody's going to get mad at you and they're not going to look sexy no more because you're going to be mad at them and the sex won't be there. You don't want it anymore, but you have to have something deeper, something that really roots you. And for us, it's Jesus Christ. You know, he tells us in Malachi that he created marriage to raise a righteous seed, which means to raise up children in his image. And so we're clear that that's our main goal, but we can only do that because we were friends first. We like each other. I'm not going to want to partner with you and raise some children in the eye of the Lord if I don't like you, you know. So, yes, we were friends first. We really enjoyed one another and we continue to enjoy one another. But we remember what it's about. You know, we don't like one another for a time. We talk about it. We might. okay. you sit over there. Oh, honey, I think we need to connect. You know, you know, we need to connect sexually. We need to connect and go out because we need to bond again because it's something that's not quite right. So we recognize even even with that, that there's a spiritual connection in that process. And um, and I think many people know that even when those who are, are married, you know, that's why people get so connected to folk. Because you get a soul tie connected when you when you have sex with somebody. You end up bonding with that person. And you you can be really messed up uh-huh. if you end up bonding with a whole bunch of other people. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> you, can, you can almost go to any preschool. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see a lot of... Uh, <laughs> That soul connected that didn't necessarily connect all the way <laughs> in, in manifestation. <laughs> like, what is going on? Yeah, but 
But uh, with that being said, like uh, that just made me remember uh, my my late godmother, uh, Mama Barnes or Thea mm. Barnes or Pastor mm. Barnes, uh, mm. <laughs> Bob Kennerly. Um, she'd say like, "Before we have sex, we pray." And I'm like, "Wow." <laughs> I'm like, wow, yes. I never even thought of nothing like that. Like, yes. man, that, means I, that means I've been having way too much casual <laughs> casual entertainment here. Because I would never think to do anything like that. It's like, well, yeah, that tells you something. Yes, it's <laughs> So now, now I, I would say with these different things and with these different journeys and processes, a lot of it also is the essence of you. And you're embracing a level of success that is against a lot of narratives that major society uh, and media sometimes will uh, will share about the black woman. Yes. And I think it's just like so cool the way you bounce your, your energy, your spirit. And you have Thank you. you have, you know, years of understanding in media, communication and journalism uh, and now looking at. Uh, America kind of seeing that that black woman is su- such more of a of a buying popular uh, and, and a buying audience and everything. But some of the images of a lot of the black women aren't like the successes, like what I see. Like it's almost like zero to hundred. It's right. like you either Oprah, right? Or you you know what I'm saying? Right. Or you nobody. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's like, true. That's you know, true. So, what's your take on like uh, this? Is kind of just my last question in guilty pleasure. What's your take on right now in the media or just like, I, I guess I would say talk to uh, men and women, but especially women about, like, the, the story of success and pacing yourself based on what you know about media and journalism itself that are creating these narratives and stories that I, I think they just lack substance. Well, they do. I mean, because people like sensationalism that sells. <laughs> and so that a lot of times when people see that, they want that because they want to be that next Instagram star or whatever. You know, as opposed to really finding out what did the Lord put me on this earth to do? You know, even if you don't believe in, in, in Jesus Christ, you look at this world, okay? And you, it is just hard for me to fathom that people cannot believe there is a higher power. I mean, it's just a fantastic looking at the world. God didn't create us in a vacuum. And so I think when people recognize what they were put on this earth to do, they would then pursue that as opposed to, trying to focus after this big glitz and glamour, this next shiny thing, or, or trying to follow somebody else's life. God didn't create you to be that person, so don't try to be that person. Mm-hmm. Pursue what he has for you. And for me, I've had to embrace the whole notion of obedience being my success. Because for me, I was always groomed, you know, be the best. You're a black woman in society. You know, that's two strikes against you. And so you had to work hard. You had to be work twice as hard to be considered half as good. All of those types of things. And so when I felt God calling me home from all that I had built, I felt like, oh my goodness, how can I be successful? You know, people are whispering in my ear, you got a master's degree. You don't want to be at home with your kids. You know, like they can't, my, my children can't use my intellect. But I wrestled with that because they were saying even what was deeply rooted in my heart because I had gotten to that point. But again, I had to know what God had called me to do and to know that the journey that he has me on is the journey that I needed to be so that I could follow after him and not just my own pursuits, but to know what he had put me on this earth to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then even in the natural and even in hearing that story, I think that that's so dope. 
And I guess I already know, like, some of my women listeners, like, you as men would think that. But it's like, even if, even if a guy, you know, whomever, like, to know that, like, I can take what this grand society values as value and then pour that into children. Yes. And now it's like, I'm, I'm now I have that knowledge. They have that knowledge. And we're arming our tribe and our village yes, with yes. extending that knowledge beyond the trusting of the system that has consistently shown not necessarily the best favor towards black people. Right, exactly. You know, exactly. and I know I'm going to love my children. Yes, You know, I, exactly. I, like, to me, it's what you did is, you know, it takes a lot of courage because it's such against the grain of what we it perceive. It's very, very anti-cultural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's almost like, it's almost like, well, so one second, you telling me like you were motivated to, to, to get gifts from grand society and then pour those gifts into your children instead of trying to put it back in grand society right. to get some money so that that money can help pour back into your children. And it's like, nah, maybe the presence of me yes. has more of an impact on them yes. so that their, uh, you know, so their journey in life has more substantive value. Yes. Especially in this, in this era of, I mean, drug use has always been prevalent, but like kind of tied to, one of my musics right now, but like pop music and rap music. Uh, mm -hmm. and yesterday, uh, an overdose of the rapper Mac Miller. I heard. It's, it's oh been such goodness. more uh, a prevalence of drug use kind of tied to depression. Mm -hmm. And then people are like, man, you know, but you're rich. Why are you? And I'm like, well, I mean, the money in drug use, even in the Bobby Brown story that a lot of people are watching and, you know, their struggles with addiction yeah. and the haze that that was. And it's like, man, and you think if, if if people were more present for that journey instead of just you know looking for these extreme highs of of sex and drugs and exactly. spending money and food and exactly. I don't know like hanging out with other celebrities and partying or whatever like if somebody just was present to say like look you can really appreciate these highs of life by just waking up if you're around the right people. Yes, exactly. Again, it goes back to what I said earlier. What does it profit a man to gain a whole world and lose his soul? Yeah. You know, and that's what happens. You know, you're just chasing all of this. What the world says is the the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. But then you find yourself empty because you don't know who you are. You lost who your real friends. You don't yeah. you, what's, what's the meaning to life. And you left with no answers. Yeah, that would depress you. I can I can only imagine, especially mm -hmm. in this generation is like, uh, you know, just different forms of heroin are being being used in, in these depressants. You know, people mm -hmm. wonder, why are people so depressed? And it's like, well, these are depressing drugs that mm -hmm. a lot of people are using right now. Uh, opium is very prevalent in many communities, yes. um, you know, black and white. Uh, and it's sad. It's, it's very sad. So to see uh, some a, a level of success that I feel can be embraced of taking that and putting that love back into a, a family, uh, back into children, back into the passion of your entrepreneurship. Yes. Uh, that's, to me, that's so successful. That's so cool. Thank and you. I don't know if people, you know, often say that and applaud as they say, you know, give people flowers while they live it. But I think that that is so cool. I and I meet a lot that. of people, but I don't know if I meet a lot of people that are doing what they want to do because it's a passion in their heart and they're fulfilled as much as people that are doing what they feel will be fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Right. And to be accepted by others. Yes, yes. 
Praise God. Thank you for that encouragement. I appreciate that. Definitely. So that brings us to the last Detroit is Different questions. These are some classic Detroit is Different questions. So question number one. Yes. What was your very first car? What year make and model was the car? What year did you get it? Uh, 1980 Caprice Classic. I was oh, in. man, you had one of those? <laughs> I did. Wow. It was the car that my siblings and I inherited from my parents. They got a new car, and we had to share oh, that car. Oh, you had an 80 Caprice. <laughs> an 80 Caprice is amazing. Yes. It got stolen, too. I was going to say, of course it those did. cars were always getting stolen. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a shared ride. Yes. Okay, where was your first ride when you got the chance to Oh my goodness, my first ride? Where did you drive to? I want to say Belle Isle. That is a good I'm place sure to take I'm sure it was Belle Isle. That's a good place to take an 80 Caprice. <laughs> yeah. That's a good place. Oh, Besides man. school. No, it might have been school first because we were happy we were able to go to school. So, well, that didn't count because you were with everybody else. That's but, true. That's so true. The, the first your ride was like, we going to the ah, we going to the rock. <laughs> that is what's up. Did you get all your friends in the ride and everything? Well, quite a few, definitely. We would always say, who, who, can, who can get the car? You had a car. Is it your turn around to get the car? You know, because I had to share with my siblings. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, how long did it last before somebody, before you walk? And then that's one of the worst feelings, your car getting stolen. Because you walk to your parking space and then you're like, what? It was it like It messes with your mind for a second. It's like a, it's like a 30 second mind freeze. Like, I swear I parked. It was it's horrible. Like, As a matter of fact, they had broken down at the end of my boyfriend's block. Mm. And so my parents had to come get me, and we were calling a tow truck to get it. So my boyfriend said he saw a tow truck, but it wasn't a tow truck that we called. <laughs> it was a oh, tow man. truck that was still in the car. Oh, oh <laughs> man. Oh, man. I can only imagine yes. the parent conversation yes. after that one. Yeah. Well, no, they were very understanding. My parents were very oh, loving, cool. understanding. Because, you know, the car was old at the time. It was 1980, so this was like 10 plus years. So it was, uh, it was on its last leg. Mm. Mm. But people soup up those. They did. Years. That's why they yeah, stole that it. body. Yeah, I'm guessing that. Like that body was like it may have been in a uh, it may have been a Detroit's most wanted video. <laughs> it could have been. Could <laughs> have put chrome on it. Like hey, that's my ride. Right. Like Mozzie Ski is in my ride. Please, Mozzie, get out of my driver's seat. <laughs> Got all new leather upholstery. Mm -mm. <laughs> Yes. That hurt my ah, heart. the 80 Caprice. Yes. That was, yeah, the 80 Caprice, the Monte Carlos. Right. Cuddies, uh, the Regals, but the Caprice Classic is definitely, mm, mm, I would say, well, what that body of 79, 80, 81. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. <coughs> a, a, a very embraced, very <laughs> embraced amongst African American culture yes. vehicle. So, yeah, you, you were killing it for a second. <laughs> you were killing it for a second. Yeah, I had friends I didn't know I had when we had we started driving that car to school. Hey, ain't that something? Uh-huh. Hey, but anything to stop <laughs> taking the bus. It's like, right. Hey. It's like, uh, hey. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know what you know what That's what it was. Like, come please. I was speaking to me yesterday. <laughs> Did you eat better made barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> All right, second question. You're the DJ for the Detroit Fireworks, and you get to play three songs. And Woodward and Jefferson, Fireworks just ended. 
what three songs are you playing? Oh my goodness. It is funny that you would ask me this because even though I like music, I'm not a music connoisseur. Mm -hmm. So let me see, what would I play? Probably something about something by Stevie Wonder. What song by Stevie? Um let's see. Um, no, man, he's so good. Um Maybe Isn't She Lovely. That was one of okay. my songs. I I had a teacher in elementary school, actually primary school. She taught us, like, all his records and songs. Mm -hmm. So okay. probably that. Maybe the house music tune, Good Life. Okay. You're going real Detroit right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I was in house there for a while. I was showing your graduation. Right, right, right. And, um. I can't think of something, something, probably flashlight. Ah, probably. Yes. You, you know how the people party. Ah, yeah, exactly. That's what, yeah. When you talked about the fireworks, I was trying to think of something upbeat, you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The people out there dancing. All right, yep, yep. People looking like, wow, keep it dancing. <laughs> so, uh, and last question. If you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Oh, my goodness. Hmm. That's a hard one. Who would I say? Because this is archived. I don't know. I don't know if I have any Detroit heroes per se. So I think I'll just pass on that one. I got I gotta get an answer out of you. Uh okay. Maybe Irma Henderson. Ah, Irma Henderson. Yes. Sight and sound. Yes. She was former councilwoman. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Emeritus. Yes. And, uh, yes. Heck of a heck politician. Heck of a yeah. Almost like the whole when you think of of the Detroit City Charter and all those ordinances she was passing through. Right. She was like writing twenty five laws a day. It's like, <laughs> what is this lady doing? What is this lady doing? That is a biopic that is needed. I don't know if it'll be done or documentary. It might be something you have to do. Maybe. Maybe. I definitely don't have biopic staff, but I would love to be a part of that project. So, yeah, maybe I need to look into that. That was also one of the big homies of, like, a godmother to my godmothers, of Joanne Watson, which I'm sure she may have been a student of your dad, too, at Central. You know what? She may have been. As I'm familiar I'm familiar with her. Uh, we were we're at church together, Oh Grove, and me some years ago. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, because she may have been, you know, another one of those Central Trailblazers. Trailblazer. Mm -hmm. Mom was a Central Trailblazer. Wow. Yeah, that's right. She did share that with me. Mm -hmm. Sixty-seven. You know, so that was definitely. Oh well, yeah. Day. You know, no, that's right. Your your mom told me she knew my dad because my dad was there at the time she was there. Mm. Yeah. I, got a, I got a 67 uh, yearbook. I'm going to have to bring it Check it out. out. Oh, I bet my dad's in there. Oh, that would be and great. Dad may have like an afro. Like, Your like, mom did tell me that. She sure did. We were mm -hmm. like, so I'm like, How did I, we never talked about this before. Mm -hmm. We did share that special moment. Yeah. Oh, yay. Northwestern. So I was like, look at them central people. Oh. These uncouth central trailblazers. <laughs> Should have been coats. Wow. <laughs> Should have been coats. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> hey, don't send your life. Should have been coats. <laughs> but yes, 
That is the Detroit is Different experience. Thank you so much, Rhonda. Thank you so much for having me, Kari. I enjoyed this. Oh, yeah, this was definitely fun. Peace.